This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Yvette Johnson discusses her new book, The Song and the Silence, a story about family, race, and what was revealed in a small town in the Mississippi Delta while searching for Booker Wright. And then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese reports on National Library Legislative Day. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. Not a lot happening in fiction, though we do have a new number one on the hardcover fiction list. That's Golden Prey by our old friend John Sanford, who Mm. always uh, hits the top of the list or very near it. Uh, This is the 27th book in his Lucas Davenport series. And uh, in this case, um, Davenport, who's a former Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension official, who's now a U.S. Marshal who can go after any case in the country, decides he wants to uh, go after a man who shot four drug dealers and a six-year-old girl during a robbery. Hmm. And uh, we say that Sanford's trademark blend of rough humor and deadly action keeps the pages turning until the smile-inducing wrap-up, which reveals the fates of a number of his quirky, memorable characters. So that's at number one. Uh, number four, Anything is Possible by Elizabeth Strout. We gave this a starred review and said in her latest work, she achieves new levels of masterful storytelling, and that damaged lives can be redeemed. But as she eloquently demonstrates in this powerful, sometimes shocking and often emotionally wrenching novel, the emotional scars can last forever. And uh, this is tied into Strout's previous novel, My Name is Lucy Barton, which uh, talked a bit about Lucy's hellish childhood. And here she reveals specific details of the horrible circumstances in which Lucy and her siblings were raised, as recollected by some of the inhabitants of Amgash, Illinois, and the surrounding communities. And she again proves Tolstoy's observation that each family is unhappy in its own way. So a uh, starred review for that. Strong book. Very nice to see it so high on the list. Number six is Bear Town by Frederick Bachman, uh, translated from the Swedish by Neil Smith. Really good to see a translated novel so high on the list. That doesn't happen very right. often. Yep. Um, but uh, Bachman's the best-selling author of A Man Called Ove, and here he tells a poignant story of a hockey town paralyzed by scandal. Jobs are disappearing, and Bear Town is slowly dying, so for its citizens, hockey is everything. And Bachman says that's because hockey tells stories. Uh, we say the story is dark at times, but love, sacrifice, and the bonds of friendship and family shine through. And he veers close to the saccharine, but readers may be too spellbound to notice. So um, that's a strong review for a strong book. And a personal interest of mine, hockey. Yeah, I was going to say, this sounds like something Mark might be into. And uh, finally, down at number 19, No Easy Target by Iris Johansson. Um, this is a standalone that stars Margaret Douglas, who's been a supporting player in bestseller Johansson's Eve Duncan series. And uh, Margaret has psychic abilities and volunteers at the San Diego Zoo where she can communicate mentally with the animals. 
Uh, and uh, there's a former CIA operative who's prepared to use force to ensure that she joins him on a mission. Uh, we said Johansson keeps the suspense high as Lassiter and Margaret work together to ensure a man's survival. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Well, we've got quite a bit on the uh, nonfiction list. Debuting at number one, not surprising. Option B, Facing Adversity. Building Resilience and Finding Joy by best-selling authors Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. Sandberg, of course, is the author of Lean In and the COO of Facebook. And Grant, who's a Wharton professor of psychology and the author of Originals, uh, we say they affirm in their helpful and hopeful new book that there's no one way to grieve and no one way to comfort. Uh, we also say that those suffering as well as those seeking to provide comfort should find both solace and wisdom in this book. So, um, number one, not surprising. Number three, we have the operator firing the shots that killed Osama bin Laden in my years as a SEAL team warrior by Robert O'Neill. That's at number three. And that's exactly what the title says. Following that, this one is called the plant paradox, the hidden dangers in healthy foods that cause disease and weight gain by Stephen Gundry. Number eight, Caitlyn Jenner, writing with Buzz Bissinger, The Secrets of My Life. Uh, we say in a review, the athlete and reality TV star Jenner teams up with Bissinger, who's the best-selling author of Friday Night Lights, for a sincere, though uneven, tell-all autobiography. We, we say while she won't win over her critics, her fans will appreciate this candid look into her life. Uh, and that's at number eight, and that's not surprising there. I thought it might have been a little bit higher on the list, actually. Publisher uh, probably wishes it were. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those books that you uh, you really you, you put out there hoping it's going to make a very, very big splash. And right. instead, it seems to be making a kind of smaller splash. Right, exactly. Still top 10. But then we have John Kasich's Two Paths, America Divided or United. This is the uh, uh, Ohio governor when he ran for, um, for president. And... This is uh, at number 17. And then afterwards, we have a bunch of books that are self-improvement, both mind and body. We have The Blast, The Sugar Out! Exclamation Point. Lower Blood Sugar, Lose Weight, Live Better by Ian K. Smith. Then we have uh, for business, Empowerment Business Boutique, A Woman's Guide for Making Money, Doing What She Loves by Christy Wright. Then we have The Power of Positive Leadership, How and Why Positive Leaders Transform Teams and Organizations and Change the World by John Gordon. And that's at number 21. Then we also have Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People by Vanessa Van Edwards, who refers to herself as a human behavior hacker. So, And then at number 23, we have uh, a starved review of a cookbook, Salt, Fast, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking by Samin Nasrat. We say this is an excellent, accessible book in which she leads readers through the cooking process. She doesn't come out to become a chef, but was so moved by her first meal at Chez Panisse that she wrote Alice Waters a letter asking her to bust tables takes off from there. Her culinary world expanded. And uh, we say the exceptional debut is sure to inspire greater confidence in readers and enable them to create better meals on their own. Finally, at number 24, uh, Only Love Today, Rachel Macy Stafford, collection of essays. We say that in these confessional essays, uh, Stafford urges readers to set aside the world's distractions and put love at the top of their to-do lists. Broken into easy-to-read chunks, this book meets today's busy moms where they live. That's what we have. 
Wow, gone are the days when we were sitting there going, nothing's changed no. on the bestseller list. This no, week. I had to run down this one, yeah. And lots of stuff is happening. <laughs> I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Yvette Johnson tells us how searching for a relative opened up a world of stories. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Jody Foster, the author of The Schmuck in My Office, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Yvette Johnson on the line. Her new book is The Song and the Silence, a story about family, race, and what was revealed in a small town in the Mississippi Delta while searching for Booker Wright. Hello, Yvette. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you. So um, that's quite a long subtitle, but I feel like it's only scratching (laughs) the surface of your book. Tell us about your grandfather, Booker Wright, and his hometown of Greenwood, Mississippi. Yeah, well, my grandfather, um, Booker, was a waiter full-time at a a restaurant that primarily only served um, whites in Greenwood. And he also owned his own restaurant called Booker's Place, um, and that was on the black side of town. And this was back, um, you know, early, you know, 60s and 70s and um, late 50s. And uh, Greenwood is this really small town in the Mississippi Delta. And, you know, I grew up knowing that my parents were from there, but I was, I was, um, I was born there, but we moved when I was two. So um, as a kid, I just grew up thinking it was, you know, this small sort of hick town, you know, that didn't really have any major department stores or grocery stores. Um, but as I, um, when I got older and began looking more closely at it myself, I realized that Greenwood really, um, during the time when my parents were, you know, middle school, high school years, and also when Booker was working those two jobs, um, you know, Greenwood, Mississippi was really a hotbed for civil rights activity. So tell us a little bit more about that. Kind of set the scene for us of of what Greenwood was like in that era. Well, you know, there were um, weekly bombings of, you know, black churches and fire. There there was a lot of violence. You know, at one point, um, Martin Luther King Jr. actually wrote a letter directly to um, President Kennedy talking solely about his concern for what was happening in Greenwood. So the town itself really was... um, a town that was at least half white, and it was, I describe it kind of like Mayberry. You know, it was a town that loved um, family and lots of outings. And then around the town, there were all of these um, plantations where, you know, there was a large house with one or two um, white families, but then tons of, of African-American families. And so, you you know, if you look at the entire county, you really had so many more people of color than you had people who were white. But, of course, the economic power um, really was in that smaller group. And so when the civil rights movement began and really began to take shape, and even that really, um, you know, by, the, by the, the telling of many historians who were experts in civil rights history, you know, I was, I was, you know, as a kid I learned that the civil rights movement began when this sweet little lady, Rosa Parks, wouldn't, you know, give up her seat in the front of the bus. But really, um, about five months before that, a 14-year-old boy was murdered, just 10 miles north of Greenwood in a town with 500 residents called Money, Mississippi, and that was the Emmett Till murder. So it's interesting because really it was in that community where the nation really began to say, what is going on down there? What is wrong down there? And, um, you know, there were, there were people in the white community who really wanted to hold on to the life that they'd had before, 
and were fearful and angry about the idea of change. And so there was a lot of violence perpetrated against blacks who attempted to vote. You know, they could have their homes foreclosed. They could lose um, uh, jobs. They could, you know, horrible things could happen to them, even just for being suspected um, as being a person who supported the movement. So it's a pretty, and, and you know, the, the phrase black power, uh, that phrase was first spoken in Greenwood. So it's it's a very historic place. Um, but it's, um, you know, today it's, it is it is kind of that town that in many ways I envisioned when I was a little girl. It's, it's still surprising when I visit Greenwood to to remember and to imagine that at one point it was it was on the national radar. And so your grandfather had, uh, I think, what seems maybe to be unique perspective, having worked uh, in the white neighborhood, but uh, uh, at, I think Lusco's restaurant, but then owning his own place, Booker's place. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about what it was, you know, the two restaurants. I mean, they must have been very different or, or were they? You know, I would say they were they were complete opposites, but at the same way, they were mirror images of one another. So Booker worked um, at Lesko's Restaurant in Greenwood for um, a total of 25 years. And he worked there for a good 10, 15 years before he opened his own restaurant. And Lesko's was really the nicest restaurant in town. So people who were making a ton of money, they, we, we call them the planter class. So individuals who either owned um, plantations or who just um, were making money off of cotton picking and, you know, whatever, beans and different things like that. But they had factories or they, you know, were high-level executives. So sort of, you know, individuals who were becoming very wealthy off of the cotton economy were members of the planter class. And that really was their place to go. And Lusco's was this really neat restaurant because they had um, curtained booths. So you would go into a booth and someone would... Um, close a curtain or and really it wasn't it wasn't really even a booth it was more of um almost like a little office space and there there was a table in there with multiple chairs and so you know you could go out to dinner and feel as though you really had privacy and there was a a little doorbell sort of um, button in each booth so you could ring your server when you wanted them and so Lesko's was a place where um people sometimes let their hair down in ways that they wouldn't any place else Hmm. And, you know, according to the Lesko's owner, Booker was the favorite waiter. And, you know, decades after he left, people who, who'd eaten there and frequented, frequented the restaurant still talked about him, in part because Lesko's didn't have any rented or um, they didn't have printed menus. And so uh, the, the waiters were expected to recite the menu. Well, Booker came up with this really amazing rhyming song, <laughs> and that's how he delivered the menu to his customers. And so sometimes people would come in just to hear this. They, they would want to sit in his section just to have that experience. And then he was also really amazing with the children in that town. You know, would play with them and keep them entertained while their parents, you know, had grown-up talk during dinner. So people just really enjoyed him, but I think on some level maybe saw him as um, an exception. You know, he's black, but he's, he's somehow different. And um, so when Booker opened his restaurant, he sort of, he had this, he had this, this sort of knowledge now imprinted on him about, um, it's really what the, the customer experiences that matters the most. So, um, you know, he had to, of course, open on the black side of town on a really dangerous street. And so from the outside, his restaurant really did not look very impressive. But once you got in, it was really, it was a place where, 
you know, middle to upper level African Americans, you know, which obviously their economic class was much different than in the white community. But, you know, they, they could go and have a nice night out. They could dance. They could visit and chat. Whereas most of the other restaurants for blacks were more of juke joints where, you know, there would be a stabbing or the police were always there. There was lots of violence, but he really kept his place um, you know, he, he just he didn't stand for any violence. If, if people came in without money and they wanted to, you know, ask someone else to buy them a meal, he would tell that person to leave. Um, it was really important to him that the customers just were assured that they could come in and at least feel a certain way in that space, which was amazing, too, because many of these blacks, of course, are living in this, this town of violence and fear and, um, you know, humiliation. And so to be able to come to a space where you are treated like you matter, you are important, um, it was it was exceptional. I'm sorry, what was the size of Greenwood at this time? Just to give us a perspective. Yeah, you know, the actual town of Greenwood, if I'm remembering correctly, I think was about 16,000. Mm. And then when you, but when you included um, the county, which um, most people did because, again, those those smaller communities outside of it really had to come into Greenwood to get supplies and things like that. The number jumps to, I think, about 46,000. Mm. So really small, con- considering that there have been, you know, it's included in so many history texts about civil rights. And, you know, it's... Um, there was it was it was it was a place it was it was almost as if for for the whites there, civil rights was their hill to die on, and for many you know black activists um, Greenwood was was the same you know it was a place where you know we've got to win this battle, so. So your book was inspired uh, by a 1966 documentary segment that highlighted your grandfather in which he talked very frankly about the racism of the town. So uh, I'm starting to get a sense of why someone would have gone to this particular town to do a documentary um, and why he would have been selected to be interviewed. But this still really caused a lot of uproar. So tell us tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So in... Um Frank DeFolita, um in 1965 went down to Greenwood, and it's, it's sort of funny because he was working for NBC, and they had this kind of documentary department, so they, twice a year he had to make something that was similar to a Dateline episode, you know, sort of a one-hour, um, you know, in-depth look at one topic. And he really wanted to go to Greenwood, but people were so afraid that he had difficulty even, even pulling together a crew, and he was required to pull together a crew of people from, you know, the NBC News Department, but in the end he was able to. Um, but he, it's interesting because Frank's goal with that film, um, Mississippi, A Self-Portrait, was to convey to people what the white argument was for segregation. Because he identified that what we were doing really was vilifying white Southerners, but, you know, it's, it, and I think in this way, I mean, I think he's, he's, he was right, and I think it even applies to our politics today. It can be very easy to look at someone and look at some of the choices they're making and decide that that person must not have a soul. They're a monster. But if you can actually discuss their reasons with them, you might actually be able to win them over, you know, without humiliating them. And so Frank's goal, you know, was to go down there and just give them a chance, you know, different community members, to give them the opportunity to say why they were pro-segregation. And so, uh, but his, one of his producing partners said, hey, you've got to come to Lesko's and hear this waiter sing. And, you know, Frank said, no, I'm, that's, I'm not here to interview blacks, and that story's been done. Because this, again, is the mid-60s. And so really since the mid-50s, there had been news reports about issues in the South. So, you know, he didn't want to tell 
the black story, he wanted to tell a different story. Um, but he ended up going to see Booker, and Booker sang the menu. And Frank said, you know, oh, that's great. I'd love to put that in my documentary. And so they weren't allowed to film at Lesko's, but the next night they went to Booker's place, and Booker shut down, and, and they filmed there. Um, and as soon as Booker was finished singing the menu on camera, he stopped. And, and really, when, when he would sing the menu, he would put on um, a persona that was very similar to, like, the, the dim-witted, happy-go-lucky slave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a very high-pitched voice and, you know, just this huge beaming smile. And then when he was finished singing the menu, his voice changed. And he looked into the camera and he said, that's how I talk because that's how my customers want me to talk. And um, wow. he went on really in just, you know, just two minutes time to um, imitate the way that he was treated by many of the customers at Lesko's and then just to describe how it felt to him um, to, to do the very best you can in your life, to bring the best of yourself to everything you do and to have it not be enough because you're the wrong color. So, so tell us, how, how did he portray his customers and how they treated him? You know, it was really interesting. So I, I would say there were two really memorable things that he did. So he um, described customers who would scream at him, and he would respond smiling, and, and his voice would get even higher and higher and higher pitch, you know, just submitting himself, trying to, to um, pacify these angry customers and you know they, they would say and, and they weren't angry about the service like it was you know don't look at me and word don't look at me for a tip don't look at me mm. um why why aren't you smiling why aren't you smiling and then he described other white customers who in an, in an attempt to come to booker's defense would say oh you should be nice to booker because he's a good n-word to which booker would responded yes yes i'm your n-word you know, so it's like, well, which one is more humiliating? Wow. Um, so. Wow. So um, you saw this documentary segment, and uh, and it sounds like it kind of opened up a world that you hadn't known about. Give us a little bit of your, your personal experience and perspective and what led to the writing of this book. Yeah, oh, well, so I learned about um, Booker's appearance um, four years before I actually saw it. So I, it was really just sort of like a legend, um, the way that people would talk about it. Uh, but the way that I always heard it was that he was angry, and I thought it was more of a man-on-the-street piece, you know, so that he was walking down the street and a reporter stuck a mic in his face and mm. he just said something provocative and kept going without really thinking about the consequences. So when I finally saw it, I remember, you know, first being, first realizing that, oh, they've got lights set up, this is a composed thing, he did have time to think about what he was going to say, um, but I was also struck by how heartbreaking it was. And I think that, that the legend, that the sense people had for many years when they would recall it was that, was that he was angry because they felt angry when they saw it. But he's really not angry. He's um, very um, just vulnerable. And it broke my heart. And I, I just, I wanted to understand, he died the year before I was born, so I never, you know, I didn't get to ask him about this. And I learned about it, um, not from family, because no one in my family knew about it. So I just became really curious to understand, well, what is he talking about? You know, what, what is this world that he's describing? I, I want more details. I want to be able to envision this world. Um, and, you know, and a lot of that was because I had two, you know, lovely, beautiful African-American sons of my own. And I, I just felt as though 
I wanted a stronger grasp on not just my own family story, but just the idea of what they might experience when they go out into the world as African-American men in America. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Yvette Johnson, author of The Song and the Silence. So um, you went to Greenwood and uh, actually ended up talking with some people who knew Booker Wright. What was that like what, and what happened? Yeah, it, it was amazing. I actually went down with a film crew. We made a, a documentary film in the summer of 2011. And it's interesting in Greenwood, if you stop anyone on the street who's of a certain age, everyone knew Booker or knew of him, you know, if they lived there long enough. But um, it, it's funny because I really did want to write a book even back then. And I, you know, after many months, I felt sort of paralyzed because I, I kept thinking I must just not be very good at this type of research because I really couldn't, I, I couldn't get a sense of him from speaking to, you know, countless people about him. Um, on camera, you know, one-on-one, you know, with me, with my recorder, you know, all sort of these different ways of, um, of trying to connect with people. And, and it just seemed like everyone experienced him from afar. And, um, it, you know, after staring at my computer and my laptop, you know, here back home in Phoenix for really for months and months at a time trying to figure out how to, how to create this man on paper, it just dawned on me that the story is why is he so difficult to nail down from family members, from his children, from his wife, from his best friends, people who worked every day side by side with him. You know, they just, their descriptions of him were the way that one would describe an acquaintance that sort of came and went from your life. So I began to look more deeply at what living in that type of environment does to your soul, to your ability to hope to your ability to connect. But I also, um, it was interesting, our production crew was able to set up uh, some interviews with people who, you know, could easily be described as individuals who were on the wrong side of history, whites who were very proud segregationists during um, the civil rights movement. And, you know, I went down there with every intention of just sort of setting these people on fire. And it was, it was <laughs> you know, it was planned that the, that the production team arranged everything so that I had no conversations, no contact with some of these individuals until we were standing face-to-face. And um, they were not the way I expected them to be. Some of, the, I mean, some of them still clearly had um, dated views on race, but they also were clearly, clearly wounded by the choices that they'd made so long ago. And so then, you know, I I began looking more closely, not just at what that experience did to to African-Americans who lived through it and to their family members who heard stories of it, but also what it did to white Americans who, um, you know, who were, you know, quote unquote, on the wrong side of history during such a pivotal time. 
And really, I mean, in Greenwood at that time, you know, I think it was William Winter who said 95 or 96 percent of anyone he knew in, in Mississippi was a segregationist. Mm. So that was that was the way it was. One of the people you talked to was the leader of Greenwood's White uh, Citizens Council. Um, yeah. What was that like? Yeah, that was Noel Davis. Yeah, he um, he actually is in Frank's original film, and he in that '66 film he's describing the charity that whites give to these to black individuals. You know, the everyday run of the mill black individual who clearly can't take care of themselves. And um, I found it to be highly offensive, and just this excellent example of how racism can deny people their humanity. You know, he just had this idea, it, just, it was clear that he just didn't think they were capable of, um, or at least it was clear to me, you know, in watching that 66 piece, mm-hmm. that, that Davis seemed to just think that blacks in general needed to be cared for, and look how kind we are that we care for them. Um, so I, I really wanted to, in my mind, the phrase I kept saying was I wanted to deconstruct a racist. You know, I came up with all these questions and, you know, all these ways that I wanted to, to approach my conversation with him and um you know i don't want to deny anyone that you know the the, the pleasure and the, the highs of reading the book so i won't get too specific <laughs> but um um i'll just say that uh that meeting the time i spent with him that afternoon completely changed my life and it informed the work that i do it, it changed everything so wow so um what did you learn about your own family history well you know i'll say i mean i grew up in a house you know, I love, love, love my parents, and, and they desperately loved me as well. But, you know, it's, when, you're, when you're little, you think everything's normal. <laughs> so as I got older, I began to realize that, um, that my parents had um, their own wounds that I would say um, were still, they, they were untended during my childhood. So I think that they, you know, without realizing it, may have at times parented in a wounded way. And... You know, and I think, you know, I've gone around the country giving talks, and so I don't feel too silly saying this because I know that lots of other people have done this. And you, you, you learn in school that in a certain country or in a certain part of our country, there were these events or these battles or these horrible things happening during these years. And then conversely, you also know that your parents or your aunts or uncles were living in that time in that place, but so often it never occurs to us to put it together. And I know now as a mother myself that when you're raising your children, there never seems to be a right time to tell them about racism and hate or about your own trauma, whether it's living in Japanese internment camps or, you know, being jailed because of your sexuality. You know, it just there's never a right time to share those stories with your kids. Um, so for me, I think the most amazing thing was was learning how, I mean, I just so many times I've imagined myself just trying to be African-American living in a town like Greenwood in the early 1960s, and I just think I would be so, so, so afraid. And that's where my parents grew up, mm-hmm. a place where you can, I mean, Emmett Till was murdered, and the two guys, everyone knew they did it, and six months later they um, confessed to a magazine that they'd done it, and they knew they were, they were fine because of double jeopardy to do that. But he was 14 years old, and they brutalized him all through the night, and no one paid a price. And that's the, you know, to raise children in a world like that, to 
to know that, that if someone just decides they don't like you, they can do anything they want to your life and to your world, and there is no recourse. Um, and I, I think that my parents and I think, you know, hundreds of thousands of other um, people of color who lived in similar situations, I think that they were wounded and scarred in ways that we are just beginning to, um, to explore. Um, as you said, you grew up in San Diego. What was it like going to Greenwood and, and sort of putting yourself physically in that place and trying to imagine what it was like emotionally and psychologically to be there in the 60s? I mean, was, was it just sort of massive culture shock? I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, first off, it's really humid, and I know it's not the only place in, you know, our country that's like that, but, you know, just the humidity and the mosquitoes, and, and I, I'd been there before, I'd been there um, the year before for a family reunion when I wasn't doing research, um, but, I, you know, I'll say that when I was, when I went back to do research to make the film, I went to neighborhoods that I, I hadn't ever been to, um, saw levels of poverty that I hadn't seen before. Um, and again, this is a very small town, so you, you know, and and the nicer, more affluent part of Greenwood is vast, and it is gorgeous. And you know, to be able to get in your car and drive for you know eight minutes, and then find neighborhoods where everything's boarded up, people are living in houses that look like they should be condemned. Um, and there's a sense, you know, and and many of the people who I've taken with me to Greenwood. Um, there's, there's just something in the air, and you, you just feel this sense, or at least people like me, maybe people from large cities or people, you know, who are unaccustomed to having to face the reality of racial strife every day. Um, you know, you, you, there's just, I just, you feel, I at least felt a sense of worry, and not really a sense of hopelessness, but just a sense of what happened here, and, and it feels very slow. Like it, like it's trying to, like the town itself is trying to move through molasses. But at the same, you know, in, in the same moment, I would have to say that some of the kindest, most giving people I've met are people from Greenwood, and these are people with history written on their souls. It's um, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing place. It's um, I don't know. It's it's an amazing place. Well, how do you feel that race relations uh, has changed in the South, or at least in Greenwood, since uh, Booker's Day? And, and how have things stayed the same? You know, I mean, that's, it, it's tricky because in Greenwood, Greenwood isn't, isn't really the kind of place that people move to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the kind of place people move away from. So a lot of the people who live there have lived there for a long time, you know, for generations and generations. And so... Um, you know, I mean, the town is legally integrated. You know, you still, you know, see, like you do in many towns in our country, you know, people um, of color living in, in, you know, sort of one or two different areas and people who are white living in their areas. Um, you definitely see a huge divide in economic um, success. You know, there was uh, there's this amazing photographer, Matt Ike, E-I-C-H, I think is how you say his last name, but he did this amazing um, photo journalism piece, I think, for NBC News. But it's um, he went to Greenwood, and he just took pictures of whites, and he took pictures of blacks. You know, and again, like some of these houses, you, you really do. I mean, like, so there's no furniture inside. There's hardly any food. And, I mean, it's just – and I can remember thinking to myself that um, – when I was there, at least, that um, – 
having lived in San Diego, I could, I could say that homeless people in San Diego probably eat more and have more access to services than people who live in houses, blacks, some of the blacks living in houses in, in Greenwood. You know, and there is a black middle class there, but, you know, one of the professors at the university, um, the university in the next town, she said to me, you know, we try and tell our graduates to, to graduate and then to go you know, don't come back because there's just, there's not a lot of opportunity there. And sometimes I wonder what will happen to that town when the people who love it so much leave. Um, There has been some investment in the town. There's actually one of the most gorgeous hotels I've ever stayed in. It's called the Alluvian. It is in Greenwood. Someone came in, I I don't even, maybe six, seven years ago, and um, tried to take a few of the streets and you know, keep that old charm, but bring them more up to date. And so there are some, you know, great restaurants there and some great experiences. But it's, you know, I mean, you really have to ask people to, to drive pretty far, you know, into the Delta to experience it. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens as the years go by and, and the people who were born in that community, you know, when they leave to see what happens. So you mentioned um, filming this documentary. And how, how did the book and the documentary end up differing? Oh, my gosh. Well, they're really different. So the doc, um, I made that with Raymond DeFolita. Um, it's called Booker's Place, a Mississippi Story. And Raymond is the son of the man who originally filmed Booker. And so the doc is really about what happened that summer um, and what we learned. So we just, you know, he was really interested in exploring his, who his father was during that time, that he would make this choice that no one else in, in his career was making. Um, to really to, to put your life in danger to tell the white story, <laughs> mm. um, and uh, and then we were we were really trying to sort of learn as much as we could about Booker. And I should say at the time there were a lot of questions about the way that Booker was murdered. So the documentary that we made um, is really about the '66 film, the events surrounding the making of that film, and then questions about Booker's murder. Um, my book is definitely more about, you know, sort of the African-American family in our nation, sort of told through the lens of my family. So um, none of my, you know, issues in my family, none of that is, is in the film. Um, and the film really sort of just documents the, the times and places in Booker's life. Like, you know, oh, and then he was doing this, and oh, and then he was doing that. Um, you know, but in my book, I look much more deeply at... Um, at what it may have felt like to live there. Um, so, and it's, it's uh, I always say it's part memoir, but it's also narrative nonfiction. You know, it's sort of like a history book because there, there's a lot of content in there um, recreating um, historical scenes. So, And what's next for you? Well, you know, it's funny. I, there, you know, writing nonfiction can be tricky in times because you, could, you know that um, where you're at, that moment needs something else, you know, but you, you can't make it up. you got to stick to what you got. So, um, which, is, which is part of the reason this book ended up being so much about, um, you know, what it feels like to be black in America growing up after, you know, in the shadow of the civil rights movement and my own parents' experience. But there were many times that just to sort of comfort myself, I would begin working on fiction pieces, and it ended up then being the same piece. And so I'm, I'm writing a second book, which I'm really excited about, and and then, and I also, you know, I do, I do workshops. I've, you know, I've taken some of the lessons of the civil rights movement and things I've learned from my grandfather about showing your humanity and seeing other people's humanity. So I've done, successfully done unconscious bias workshops with police officers, 
which is um, intense anyway, but it's extra intense given the environment that we're living in. And, and you know, those workshops are phenomenal. You know, it's, um, I'm real about my bias, and we talk about what they're, what they're faced with, the challenges they're facing. And so, um, you know, they normally start off scary because, you know, it's, I think there might be some assumptions about how I'm going to present the material, but by the end of it, um, the officers usually feel um, affirmed and respected, but they're also very aware of their biases and the biases in some of their systems of policing. So, We've been talking with Yvette Johnson, and you can find her book, The Song and the Silence, in stores right now. Yvette, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rose, and thank you, Mark. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about National Library Legislative Day. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Holly Tucker, author of City of Light, City of Poison, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about National Library Legislative Day. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hello. It's always nice to have you on the show. I feel like it's been a while. I feel like it's been a while, but it's always <laughs> nice for me, too. So um, our, our excuse to hang out with you today is National Library Legislative Day. Tell us what it is and what it was like to be there. Yeah, it's it's a program that's run by the American Library Association's Washington office. And essentially what it does is it brings uh, this year over 500 librarians to Capitol Hill. And they run like a one-day session that is part... Uh, master class on uh, talking to legislators, part primer on the key issues that libraries face in the political realm, and part pep rally. And then on uh, day two, and even some on day one, all of these legislators go to the Hill and meet with their state legislators and uh, remind them all, of all the important things that libraries do and of all the ways that they can help libraries do those things. So and these are these are real live librarians. Real live librarians. No, no paid shills. No here. paid shills. No, no. It's all, 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 all libraries from every state in the union. And uh, at the end, did they feel like they were heard? Almost always. I mean, the, the American Library Association Washington office is a tremendously effective political operation, and especially so over the last 20 years or so. Uh, Emily Sheketov, who is their director, is actually retiring this year. And there's going to be big shoes to fill, I think, in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, but librarians don't lobby like corporations do, right? They don't do it with big fancy dinners and unlimited right. pack donations. They do it with shoe leather. They do it because the issues that they're lobbying for are important to the public. In fact, that's one thing that somebody years ago told me when I was writing a story on, on the Washington office is that the only issues that librarians care about are the issues that the public cares about. And therefore, those right. issues are issues that politicians should care about. So what were some of the issues uh, this year? Well, first and foremost, funding, right? And right. it's almost yeah. a given that funding is always going to come up. But obviously, this year is especially important because we have President Donald Trump. Uh, and in Trump's skinny budget, and it's a skinny budget because there's nothing, no information in it, he proposed eliminating virtually all federal library funding. Mm. That's the uh, most federal li- library funding comes through the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Uh, and Trump has proposed zeroing that out. When we got to Washington on Monday, we got some good news. We learned that library funding for the rest of this fiscal year, which ends on September 30th, is is fully funded. In fact, they got a million dollars more over 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the battle is now underway 
for 2018. And specifically, librarians had a few asks when they went to the Hill. One was to fully fund the Library Services and Technology Act, which is where federal funding for library comes from, uh, at $186.6 million, which is about what Trump's security is going to cost in a year. Not a lot of money for a lot of great return from libraries. Uh, The other thing was to fund a program called the Innovative Approaches to Literacy Program, only $27 million. Uh, Again, a drop in the bucket, but that program really funds school libraries, reading programs, gets parents reading with their kids. Tremendous return from that program as well. And the main thing, the big thing that's happening is that the overarching law that enables all federal library funding, which is called the Museum and Library Services Act, is up for reauthorization this year. Uh, Now, this may be a little inside baseball, but Congress can allocate federal library funding without this act. Mm -hmm. But reauthorizing this act sends a powerful message to Trump, sends a powerful message to the executive branch in general that libraries are important to legislators and to keep the Institute of Museum and Library Services going uh, hands off. So Wow. And then we also have the uh, NEA and NEH uh, at the same time. Yeah, big deal. I mean, the NEA and the NEH are huge supporters of libraries. Um, they've, I forgot the actual figure, but over their 50-year history, we're talking about uh, you know probably hundreds of millions, if not bil- a billion in library grants. Right. So that's also, and, and you know, when Trump's budget first came out, we were, you know, at a library conference, actually, right. and it really cast a pall over the conference. Um, but you know, those organizations, too, have been fully funded. Actually, they got a slight uptick for the rest of this fiscal year. Yeah. But keep your eye on the prize. That's the futures. The FY 2018 budget that's going to be fought over in the coming months. And, and that's really where the rubber is going to hit the road. So when you were at these workshops, um, what were some of the tips that you got for talking to legislators, making yourselves heard in what is probably a pretty crunched amount of time? Yeah. The most important one that I heard was to make it personal. Mm. When you go to talk to your legislator, let them know how that law really impacts you in your library. Now, I'm speaking from the librarian's point of view here, but every day they're helping somebody. That's what they do. They're, they're, it's a service, right? How did you help a family uh, you know, navigate a certain challenge? How did you help a veteran you know, learn more about their benefits? How did you connect people with books? You know, how, mm. Just education, also a big mission of libraries, too. So those can be pretty broad issues. So right. the most important thing was to find a way to make them personal and make make your leg, your leg, elected official connect with that. So it sounds like the overall feeling was positive or at least encouraging. I mean, except what you said about 2018. I think it's, it's positive in this sense. Um, there's a great challenge with Donald Trump in office now. Right. Um, there is a, in fact, um, Keith Fields, who's the director of the American Library Association, also retiring, said it was the challenge of a lifetime now facing Mm -hmm. libraries. But librarians are definitely up for the fight. Yeah. Um, They are absolutely energized. This year was the most attended legislative day since 9-11, I was told. Wow. And there was another thousand librarians that were participating online. And with, you know, the advent of social media, that's another way for them. So there was a training session on social media and there's been avenues opened up via social media for librarians to Mm -hmm. talk to their legislators. So as big as the challenges get, the library community is absolutely rising to those challenges. Well, it sounds like it was a really valuable thing. And how did it feel for you to be there and, and surrounded by that energy? It was pretty intense. I, you know, I was not. I didn't know exactly what to expect. And now I, I do a lot of reporting on legislative matters, and I have some sources on the Hill. I didn't actually go to the Hill to meet with legislators, but I did say hello to some of the people who keep me in the know, information-wise. Right. 
and the most important thing that I was reminded of there was that when we talk about librarians, they really are the closest thing that the public has mm-hmm. to representation in Congress. I mean, we can all talk to our representatives directly, of course. Right. But you have a lobbying organization here for libraries that doesn't have the funding of, say, a corporate lobby, but nevertheless is organized and fighting for things that are extremely important to us, whether it's reading, access to books and education, privacy. Uh, one of the keynote speakers was uh, Hina Shamsi, who's the ACLU executive director. She spoke about the library community and the ACLU's efforts to right. roll back uh, surveillance measures in this country. So you just, without the ability to feel free to associate with anyone you want, to read anything you want, democracy dies. I just really had an overwhelming sense of how lucky we are and how important libraries are uh, to our democracy. Wow, that sounds like an amazing experience. Sir, I would recommend it to anybody. So, <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Andrew. It's always great to have you on the show. My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 